Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the new Disney Pixar film, Toy Story 4. We're also going to take a gander at the new uh, slasher horror reboot, Child's Play. We're going to have a conversation about uh, movies over the course of the next 10 years, based on a New York Times article that had some interesting hot takes from a couple people in the industry. But before we get to all that, we need to talk about the news and our first story this week. Uh, In a surprise twist, the Chinese box office saw a certain animated film beat out Toy Story 4 uh, this week. Big surprise, Toy Story 4 is supposed to be a big release over there. The movie that beat it is actually 18 years old, and it's a film (laughs) called Spirited Away by Studio Ghibli. It's a tremendous film. Andy, any hot takes on the Chinese box office? Yeah, so it's important to note that Spirited Away has not been shown in China at all until now. Um, For whatever uh, political reasons, I think probably uh, the film just hasn't been released. So this is literally the first time in almost 20 years that that film has been uh, screened there. So that I think that's a big part of its success. Yes. Uh, Spirited Away did, of course, come out in 2001, like I said, 18 years ago. It's funny. It actually had a little bit to do with Pixar. Uh, Pixar's John Lasseter was responsible for uh, convincing Hayao Miyazaki to translate the film. So in a weird way, uh, Disney has a hand in this. They're responsible for distribution in America. They're somehow involved. Um Spirited Away won an Academy Award when it came out for Best Animated Film. Uh, In 2016, it was voted the fourth best film of the 21st century. It has a handful of awards. It is a tremendous film. If you haven't seen it, you really should because it's real good. So are we surprised that this beat out Toy Story 4? No, not at all. I I mean, I think the biggest part uh, is that Toy Story is an American film and Spirited Away is, while Japanese, it is an Eastern film. So I think it's probably a little bit more relatable. And it has a lot of those themes about uh, family and generations and about uh, moderation, things that kind of resonate with that culture a little bit more. And I'd love to say this is uh, maybe a little bit of a case of sequelitis, right? Maybe even Chinese audiences are a little sick of Toy Story, like a fourth one. Neat, you know, Um, but it's hard to say when it comes to Marvel films, they do sequels all over and those are still popular. So I think it's a little bit more um, just as movies got a history and a really solid story and a reputation, I'm sure. And Toy Story 4 is a little bit um, maybe not that way. And speaking of the Chinese box office, our second story. (laughs) So this giant war film just got pulled from the Shanghai International Film Festival. It's a war epic called The 800. All right. This is supposed to be a really, really big deal in China. It's a Chinese war film. It has this huge budget. And this just got pulled uh, from China completely. Their, their, their July 5th premiere is gone. It has something to do with censors, and I didn't really figure out what before we started the show. Andy Phillison. <laughs> uh, so this uh, film, The 800, uh, has to do with the World War II battle in 1937 with the, uh, the Chinese and nationalists and some other group uh, repelling Japanese forces. So it's, it's a very nationalistic film. Uh, however, it's kind of complicated because I think a civil war then ensued after this said battle. So the way everything is portrayed is very, they have to be very careful because China has very, very strong censorship. They have to, um, everything, political things especially have to be presented in a certain way. Uh, so this film has fallen victim to that. Someone, someone in the censorship bureau was not happy about something, and so it's been pulled, and it's been canceled entirely until it can be reworked and redistributed. Definitely a bummer. 
Um, but what can you do? I guess China's always been that way. They're a big censorship place, which is weird because there's a ton of global box office money coming out of that country, but they're very particular. They, they, they don't like representations of history that are particularly favorable to China's nationalists uh, who fought side by side with the communists against the Japanese uh, back in the war. And apparently that's what this film is glorifying in some fashion. It was supposed to line up with the 70th, 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic, um, which I guess is really important over there. Um, bummer. And I guess it's, uh, you know, thank God for, for free cinema here in, here in the States, right? We don't have that problem. We think. Right, right. But what's interesting is that you know China is very much uh, an important market, and American films do pander to China a lot, and they they will also have to be on board with a lot of these censorship rules if they want to get their films distributed over there. Sure, and there's uh, Chinese films that pander to uh, American appreciating Chinese audiences. You remember that movie, The Great Wall, with Matt Damon in the lead yes. role? Yeah, I always think of that movie when I think of Chinese film because it was so odd. It was such a weird pick. Like, you just have a, the whitest dude play the lead in a, in a strictly Chinese war film. And, like, it, it worked. It made a bunch of money. Didn't, it did horribly over here, but that's the way it goes. Um, funny how, how the bean counters in Hollywood will try to account for uh, global audiences. Our last story, Marvel reveals Avengers Endgame re-release details. Did we talk about this in the show last week? I'm not we sure mentioned, if we did. We mentioned that it was going to be release, re-released. Yeah. We have some more details now. F- fill us in on that. Okay, so it, they made it sound like it was going to be, or they said the film was going to be re-released with some more footage, and it made it sound like it may be an extended cut or something to that nature. It is not exactly that. It will be. It will come with a new introduction by uh, director Joe Russo, and then it will show a an unfinished deleted scene, and also have uh, a sneak preview of Spider-Man: Far From Home. So this is more about kind of hyping up the next Spider-Man movie, I think, and maybe trying to overtake Avatar um, is for the first top movie of all time. I don't think we're getting a lot of new footage. Yeah, uh, you're also getting participating theaters will be giving away copies of an exclusive poster featuring the Iron Man gauntlet and the tagline, we love you 3000 while supplies last. I think this is definitely not so much drumming up excitement about Far From Home and more so trying to beat Avatar. Avatar mm-hmm. made $2.8 billion at the box office. Endgame is currently at $2.74 billion. It is startlingly close. I'm going to be honest. Uh, I don't like this move. I, I like I, Marvel, I don't either. But I, I'm not into this. I'm not into uh, movies trying to swing their weight around and try to outdo each other. Like, Avatar didn't have to come out twice to make $2.8 billion. At least I don't remember if it did or not. Uh, I'm pretty sure it only did it once and made $2.8 billion. So, like... It did, did run forever. You so, didn't do it. Like, it did, but, like... I don't know. Endgame is still in theaters, right? I, I went to a theater uh, last night to watch Toy Story 4, and they still had showings of Endgame. So, like, it's very true. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I remember... Go ahead. I think what I don't like is that it it's like film DLC, uh, mm-hmm. downloadable content. It's, it's something you're paying more to get the entire product or, the, you know, some more that should have maybe just been there all along. Yeah, and their their marketing budget is so small on it. Like, who's talking about this? Us on our podcast, and I don't know anybody else. I haven't seen any ads for it. There's no billboards. There's no, like, oh, my God, come back and watch Endgame and see this thing. Like, they're just trying to eke out an extra $0.6 billion. $0.06 billion. $0.07 billion to beat out uh, uh, Avatar. Like, I, I don't know. I, I remember back in the day when I worked at the movies in high school, uh, I loved The Dark Knight when it came out, right? 
And the Dark Knight we had in theaters like forever, and it was so cool. And I remember Dark Knight when I was there had our longest run of being in a theater. It was it was in the theater for like ten weeks or something. It was awesome, and like it was my personal record, and I loved it because because it, it was the Dark Knight. And then The Blind Side came out starring Sandra Bullock, right? And uh-huh. that one persisted and was in theaters for like twelve weeks, and it really frustrated me at the time because I was like, that movie is no better than The Dark Knight. Why does it get to be there longer? This is the thing, like. A movie doesn't have to be better or worse for it to set a record. It just has to have a certain place in time. And like Avatar landed when 3D was hot and people wanted to see what this big epic was about with the blue people and Endgame is great too, but somehow Avatar did better. It's just the way it is. It's okay. Like it's not, it's not about setting records, but like, I don't know. I guess Disney really wants it. So yeah, it is what Disney who owns Avatar world, by the way, who also has a stake in Avatar. (laughs) So, you know, they're just taking over the world, I guess. Anyway, speaking of Disney, uh, we should probably talk about our first film of the show. Andy, you graciously agreed to take the summary on this one. Please take it away. Toy Story 4. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, so we pick up with Woody and Buzz and the rest of the toy gang, um, I guess kind of after the uh, the last film where um, the toys have been given to... Uh, a young girl named Bonnie since Andy has grown up and gone off to college. Um, we, we see uh, Woody still struggling to be in the spotlight, be the person in charge as Bonnie picks other toys to play with. And uh, we see Woody being left in the closet. And she also peculiarly, uh, she goes to school and she creates a toy named Forky uh, played by, Oh, Tony Hale. That's what Tony Hale. Yes. Um, who is confused because he's, he's having a crisis of identity. He's like, no, I'm, I'm not a toy. I'm a fork or I'm a spoon. I'm, I, I, I eat and then I go in the trash and he has a hard time wanting to be a toy. And what he finds it his mission per, to make sure that Forky stays in Bonnie's life, that she's a toy. Um, and this is kind of the, the setup and we go off on a road trip uh, we f- see a lot of familiar faces, meet some new faces, and kind of get a whole new story with the Toy Story gang. Um, I don't want to get too much into it. I'll go ahead and save my my thoughts for later. Zach, what did you think? Okay. Um, so I like Toy Story 4 a lot. I think it does a lot of stuff really well, and it's really charming. I think, unfortunately, it's born under a little bit of a bad sign because I definitely grew up with Toy Story 1, 2, and 3, and those movies have a lot of nostalgic cultural value for me. Um, but trying to objectively look at this as its own movie, and especially as a children's film, and not trying to get too far into it as an adult, it's really good. It's really good. But when you start to look at things and really analyze, you start to see, you know, cracks in the armor. Uh, and I want to talk about that. But ultimately, I enjoyed it a lot. What did you think? Um, I, I really, really liked it as well. Uh, I didn't know what to think at first because it's it's the fourth film in a series, which uh, you generally start to get diminishing returns by then. But it's also Pixar, which all, they generally always do a good job. So... I didn't really know what to think, but I I was really charmed. And the story goes in a really different way. Um, One uh, thought that I've heard is that it's more about the toys more than the other films. The other films are really about the the kid or the relationships between toys and their children. Uh, This is much more about the toys themselves. And it it gets really existential, funny enough. Like uh, Woody has a hard time accepting the fact that 
he keeps trying to recreate the past. He keeps keeps trying to um, have this relationship with Bonnie that he had with Andy, and he's just stuck in the past, and he doesn't know how to move forward. You know, so he's having this whole crisis about what what is my purpose now? And there's several other other characters in the film have that in different ways. So it's a very like adult. Uh, themes in the film uh, but we get we get a lot of action we get a lot of really great animation we get some scary stuff which uh, the series has always managed to put in there um good performances i i really liked it uh for the most part where should we go from there let's start with the plot i suppose that's the best place to go right we're picking up after the events of toy story 3 for anybody who doesn't know I mean, you mentioned at the top, but Toy Story, at the end of Toy Story 3, Woody and the gang are left with a new kid, right? That's the whole deal. And so this one is the first one picking up, formerly in theaters, after a bunch of shorts, which I have not seen, so I, you know, those basically don't count for me, uh, where they're part of the new gang, and they're not as popular, right? Uh, the the mm-hmm. toys aren't quite as hot as they used to be, and that bums out Woody, who is uh, somehow left out, out of the limelight, and... In his effort to try to help his new kid acclimate, right, Bonnie, uh, to, to the new world around her in kindergarten, um, you know, he, he really puts himself on the line to try to help all the other toys. He kind of always has. That's his deal as sheriff. And so this is a very Woody-centric story. There is no Andy. It's not even really about Bonnie. Buzz is <laughs> pretty much completely pushed to the back burner yeah, in this Yeah, he's, he's not in it very much. I, I would argue uh, his character is basically reverted to, like, Toy Story 1. It almost acts like Toy Story 2 didn't happen. He is He is dopey and dumb, whereas Woody is very sharp and very intelligent and implied to have some kind of essentially soul, right? The voice inside of you. And like, it's, it's an allegory for relationships. That's really sharp and, and, and speaks to adults. That's something Pixar has always been really good at, but it's also told through the lens of like children's toys in a really sharp, clever, engaging way. Um, I, I, I love the, the, the setting. They go to Grand Basin. It's a little town out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, a lot of the movie takes place at this carnival and also in this antique shop um, that, is, that is gorgeous visually. And, and ultimately, like I, I think the characters are a lot of fun, but some of my old favorites are completely pushed to the background if they're even in the film at all. Buzz, Buzz is a fine example. Um, yeah. A lot of the old so-and-sos just aren't in there because they didn't have time. You can't, can't, you can't cram in 50 toys, right? Like, how's that going to work? So... Um, but ultimately the way it all comes together and, and the way we have a villain, uh, who deals with Woody, like is, is really, really neat. I don't know. Really charming. Like as I was watching this movie, I was just, I was engaged. I hardly ever checked my watch. Like the plot moves along at a good pace. It didn't feel too long. Yeah. Um, we get a lot of interesting characters. Uh, I want to talk about some of the new ones. We meet, uh, Gabby, who's a 1950s doll who, with a broken voice box and she, you know, she feels like she's also missing her purpose and she she wants to get fixed so that she can, you know, be taken by the, uh, this this girl that comes into the, the shop. Um, we also, we meet Bo Peep, who is, we discover, was given away some, so many years ago and then uh, she ends up in this same ant- antique shop and she's completely different. Uh, she's kind of an adventurer now. She, she, she runs, a, she's a, a good foil to Woody because she runs a, a, like a set of toys that are in the park and they, they're for everyone. They don't have a specific child. And Woody has a really hard time dealing with this um, concept because he's always had one person uh, to kind of belong to. Um, we meet, we also have uh, Keanu Reeves killing it <laughs> again as Duke Kaboom. Duke Kaboom. Canada's greatest stuntman. Exactly. Uh, um, he, he's a really, he has a great role. It's, it's really funny. He's got some good action scenes, but, but you're right. 
as we get some new characters, that means our old characters kind of get pushed uh, to the back. Yeah, it, the, the movie opens with a flashback, um, which is charming, and it gives you a lot of opportunity if you're an old so-and-so from the old Toy Story first-gen regime uh, to get a little back into the shoes of, of, of Andy and Andy's toys and stuff, and uh, that's really neat. Um, and there's a few toys in those scenes that just don't exist in the rest of the movie, and it's like, oh yeah, you reminded me that they're not here. Which I guess is okay. Like the movie, in a lot of ways, is kind of about moving on. But it felt tough to differentiate that from Toy Story Three because Toy Story Three was a very satisfying conclusion. I felt to the Toy Story saga, and now we have another one. What did you think about that? This kind of picking up the reins where that one left off. Um. Well, I haven't seen those in a really long time, so I don't. I don't remember how. I do remember it being very finite or seeming like a good end uh, to the story. Um. But I, I was happy with what this did because, like I said, it kind of took Woody on another journey, almost kind of completing his arc because uh, the first film is very much about this the sense of being replaced, of you know, worried about the younger, newer kind of uh, thing, which is very, which is a very adult problem and, and issue. And so it's it's been about Woody overcoming these different. Um, kind of psychological issues and this one is is no different I, it, to me sequels are all about expanding the world expanding the character and this does this so even though the third one was a good bow this film works too for me right there's this big kind of theme of like lost toys versus toys that have kids right and bo peep is this toy who is lost and she's totally cool with it and and woody is a toy that has a kid but he doesn't he isn't really connecting with her anymore. So he's in this spot where he doesn't know if he should really double down and try to get back in good graces with Bonnie, or maybe he should step back and let other toys have their limelight and, and let them bring happiness to children. And maybe he maybe he finds something different with Bo being lost and, and, and kind of helping kids connect uh, with new toys at this carnival. Which is which is really admirable. Um, but in a lot of ways, like it just feels like Toy Story Two again which kind of frustrated me and like a kid wouldn't know any better, but like, hear me out at the beginning of toy story two, right? Let me, let me very quickly sum up toy story two. Uh, Woody is taken from his owner in service to another toy. He's trying to save another toy and he's taken away. Uh, and he finds out he is of worth more value than just being a toy to a kid. He's more valuable than that. Uh, he's, he's like an antique and, and he can do more. And so then he has to decide whether or not he wants to become this new thing or go back to being, the toy of his kid. This movie is the same plot, just in a different, like in a different lens. He's trying to save another toy. He's removed from his kid. And then he has an identity crisis and has to decide whether or not he wants to go back to being a toy for a kid or being his own toy. And, and like, it was cool in the same way. Toy story three was kind of like toy story one. This one's kind of like toy story two, but like, it does leave me with an odd feeling of like, it feels like, it, to me, like they're going to do another one, but they shouldn't because they were never supposed to do this one. So I don't know. As an adult, that was confusing. As a kid, I'd be excited. <laughs> I'm yeah, sure yeah. It feels like there's more to come. Did you get that at all? Do you even remember Toy Story 2? I, I do not. Uh, is that the one with Jesse? It is. Yeah. It's, In he, the he prospector. Was, okay. It's coming back to me, but I do not remember it at a all. Li- a little bit of background on this. Uh, I connect a lot with Toy Story back in the day because uh, when Toy Story follows a linear... Um, timeline as far as its movies releases go just like ghostbusters 2 came out five years after ghostbusters 1 so they set ghostbusters 2 five years later in the movie in toy story 1 andy i think is like eight 
I was eight when Toy Story 1 came out. So in Toy Story 2, <laughs> he's like 12. I was 12. And in Toy Story 3, when he's going off to college, I was going to college that year. It's insane. Christine's got the same thing. So, like, we're both tied to Toy Story in a weird way because, like, it really spoke to us at times in our lives when it mattered. Like, we were the target demographic to a T. This movie's not that way. I'm removed from it because it's a new kid, Bonnie, and, and you know, it's a new thing. But um, it just makes our characters feel a little a little out of place. Woody's a little deeper. Buzz is much more shallow. Uh, a lot of our characters don't give me line, as many lines as they would. So, like, I don't know. That, that, that was odd for me, but... Um, what did you think? I think it, it kind of begins to have the problem that like a good TV show does is after the first three or four seasons, you have to start introducing new characters or like someone has to get married or have a kid or something just because you, you start, you run out of things to do with the original cast. Right. It's also important to, to say like Don Rickles passed away who played uh Mr. Potato head, mm-hmm. you know? So, this is how old this series is and so maybe it's time to move on uh a little bit we all i wanted to mention we also have a lot of funny moments like i mentioned before uh counter reeves as duke kaboom uh we also get uh key and peel uh playing uh oh gosh ducky and bunny that's right so there are these two stuffed animals that are connected to each other um and they're pretty funny they have a lot of bad ideas and we get to see it those bad ideas acted out in their mind uh to great comedic effect uh, i thought those scenes worked really well a lot of fun um but yeah i i, I agree i think it's time to uh let this series be done before we ruin it <laughs> yeah the, the 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 footnote for that if anybody doesn't know the whole reason toy story 4 happened is because john lassiter who wrote the original three um, before he left Pixar for, for things that we probably shouldn't discuss on the show, do your own research. Uh, he was secretly working on a script for Toy Story four, uh, while Toy Story three was in production, he wanted to have a love story between Woody and Bonnie. That was the whole deal. And so he worked on that with a guy named Andrew Stanton, who's another writer for a lot of Pixar films. And they came out with the script for Toy Story four after Toy Story three came out. A bunch of allegations came out about Mr. Lasseter. He's no longer with Pixar, but this movie happened anyway. So that's kind of where it came from. It was never like planned really. Uh, it's just kind of this thing that they stumbled upon and they were like, oh, there's actually a pretty good script to roll with it. Um, let's talk about characters or let's talk about cast voice acting. I know you've kind of gotten into them before, but a, a couple observations from me. Uh, Tom Hanks is great in the role uh, and, and he works at it too. You can tell the voice acting is tough on him. Um, he, he's expressed in interviews. He's like, Th- those movies kill me because I'm killing it in the booth trying to like give the most em- emotive voices possible. Uh, yeah. Tim Allen, like I, dude, he sounds horrible. Phone, he's phone, he's phoning it in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I heard on a, an interview about uh, Tom Hanks that this uh, he actually had to face away from the when he was recording. He said he had to face away from the uh, you know the people in the booth because um, mostly because everyone would just get real emotional. So he had to like look away so like so everyone didn't start just start like, tearing up <laughs> yeah, while he's tried tried to record this thing. It's so convincing too. Like I've heard people say, well, maybe maybe Buzz will be more prominent in the next one. I'm like I think they're gonna recast Buzz in the next one <laughs> if he's even in it. Like, oh my god! Like they, I don't know if that's a thing with like because uh, Tim Allen was doing Last Man Standing on ABC and then it got canceled and it turned into national news and then Fox picked it up and ABC is a Disney company. Like I don't know what it is, but like they did not have a shine for Buzz Lightyear or Tim Allen in this movie. It felt like they were just like, yeah, come in, record your lines, get out of here, we don't care. Um. So I don't know what that's about, but otherwise I, I appreciated the, you know, the cast. Everybody's good in it. Let's talk about the visuals. I, I know, I know we're kind of just <laughs> bird walking our way through this movie, but this movie is gorgeous. 
Yeah, the animation uh, is incredible. As we say, it, it only gets better with every movie. Um, as Mark Kermode said, we are in the golden age of, of animation, and this movie is an example of that. We, we get some really lifelike scenes. Uh, there's a scene involving a cat that's really good. Uh, Bo Peep drives around this. Uh, it's like an RC car with a, with a skunk camo thing covering it uh that that provides some action scenes also looks looks really great the carnival itself at night those scenes look amazing as well so the animation is top notch yeah the out the exterior shots the sun shining through bushes and stuff and these carnival lights at night like are gorgeous it's incredible stuff and second chance antique shop which is where a lot of the movie happens is is a a sight to behold because there's so much going on in that antique shop i mean you just let a bunch of animators loose you said okay you can make things from any decade any items you want you can give them any color or texture or shape or size or anything and throw it all in this antique shop and and throw a layer of dust over it it's really cool stuff and there's so many cool knickknacks and easter eggs going on in the background like there's something to look at in every frame it's really engaging visually mm-hmm. uh the soundtrack randy newman um you know they gave him a, they gave him a new original song in this movie they shouldn't have it's horrible <laughs> uh <laughs> just don't just don't don't let randy newman do any do any music anymore you know what i mean just just let him let him do his I, own thing I I really liked the score, but yeah, I could do it. Like the original song is pretty forgettable, but just the 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 music in Toy Story has always been very good. Like the emo the emotional stuff, music when emotional things are happening, like that kind of stuff lines up really well. Um, I really like the score. That was definitely one of the things that stood out to me. I guess to kind of move things along, um, do you think there will be a Toy Story five? I wouldn't be surprised. I, I I wouldn't say no. They're completely done. It's because it's it's done very well. It's the best opening of the series. Yeah. So I'm in I'm fi- in the same boat. Financially, you know, we can make more money. So you never know. At the same time, the cast is aging. One of the one of the voices is no longer with us. So you you're you know you run the risk of having to replace everyone. And you're also kind. You're starting to run out of story elements. A little bit. So. so- I think I it would be. I think it would be best if it stopped here. But who knows? I agree. At the same time, like I know Disney loves money, so I don't know. Like I was, I was seeing articles two weeks ago. Are they going to make Toy Story five? And and then you know, seeing this movie, like I don't know. See it for yourself. I guess you, you be the judge. Um, they, they they don't leave it on a cliffhanger or anything. There's there's no like, oh man, they're going to do one now. Like it's a pretty satisfying ending. Um, but I don't know. I didn't think they were going to make a Toy Story four, and here we are. So I guess. We'll see. Um, to kind of sum things up, any 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 final thoughts? I guess the last thing I, I want to mention is that uh, there are some references to a one Stanley Kubrick and uh, The Shining itself, in particular, and apparently one to two thousand one as well. Which I didn't know that there were apparently Kubrick references in all the Toy Story films. Um, that just I didn't know that, but there's definitely some some cool ones in this one as well. Yeah, like I said, a lot of really cool Easter eggs in this movie. Uh, I was really impressed by them. Uh, I, I liked them a lot. Uh, the, the, the Shining one genuinely made me laugh. Um, and as far as the comedy goes, while, while I'm thinking of it, it, like a lot of laughs in this movie. I enjoyed it a lot. A lot of smiles, a lot of grins. Not so many tears as three, but like I said, I was really attached to that one. So it is what it is, I guess. Uh, recommendations? Are we ready? Yep. Andy, would you recommend Toy Story 4? Uh, absolutely. It was really good. Uh, the series still has it. it. It's heartwarming. It's funny. There's adventure. You get some scares. It's you know, it's rated G. Take the family. Take the kids. I, I have some some friends that this is the first movie they're taking their kids to see, um, which is funny because it's the fourth movie. Uh, but definitely highly recommended. It's 
after a month of some really bad films at the uh, the box office, it was it was a nice change. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I would recommend this movie. If you've got kiddos, take them to the theater. They will enjoy Toy Story 4. It's a lot of fun. If you like the originals, I think you'll like this one too. It's not the best in the series, but it is very, very good. That's what I think of Toy Story 4. And with that, we should move on to our next segment. Andy, please, you want to do the honors on the title? It's time for the death of cinema. Perfect. So, uh, to kick this off, uh, let me dig into this a little bit, frankly, because Andy knows the article better than I do. So, uh, what this is, we found this New York Times article, Andy found this New York Times article earlier in the week, uh, called How Will the Movies as We Know Them Survive the Next 10 Years? And what this is, is a really interesting, like, almost like a almost like a like a mural or mosaic of opinions from a handful of different people in the industry people like jason bloom from bloom house pictures who does horror films people like jj abrams jessica chastain elizabeth banks the actresses joan anthony russo who directed the avengers movies kamal nanjani who's a comedy comedian like just actors and people in the industry who who are kind of thinking about where movies are going to go in the next 10 years. And I got some really hot takes and I want to talk about it because I, I think a lot of these are, are really engaging. Andy, where do you want to start this conversation? Um, so I've, I've written out kind of these list of questions. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll pick from there. Uh, so the, this first one is, is there a future in theater for anything besides blockbusters and kind of what goes hand in hand with that is, is theatrical release still important? Um, and we get a very diverse kind of response about this. You have, uh, cause they interview different, uh, you know, celebrities, actors, producers, directors, uh, about these questions and, and got a, a bunch of quotes. Um, and so you get some people that are saying, yes, we need to, the, the theatrical, uh, experience is sacred. We need to keep it. It's a tradition. In, tradition we need, we need to keep alive. And then other people say, "No, it's dead. We need to move, we need to adapt and move on. We need to embrace streaming. We need to embrace the internet. We need to embrace mobile phones." Uh, so that's kind of the first place I'd like to start. So, what, Zach, what do you think about that? <laughs> as far as yeah. is there room for anything besides blockbusters? Well, you've heard my hot takes on Netflix and man, like the more I go to the theater on busy nights, the more I think to myself, like there's a reason this stuff is overtaking like, you know, cinemas, or at least it feels like it. Uh, like we can look at movies like Avengers Endgame and clearly understand that like, you know, the, the, the movie theater's not going anywhere, but like Joe Russo, who was one of the directors for Avengers Endgame made a really good point in this article. He said, uh, you know, nowadays it's so easy to get content on your phone. You gotta have a really good reason for somebody to get up walk out, drive to the theater, pay the price of admission and sit down for three hours and watch a movie. It's gotta be real good. So what are you going to do to get people to do that? And it's a good question. Um, you know, you can obviously make something like Endgame, make a big skeptical, make series of things and kind of build up to something bigger. It's working great for Marvel, but for smaller theaters, for independent cinema, I have no idea what they're going to do. And when it comes to thinking about where movie theaters are going to be in 10 years, in a lot of ways, that's who I'm more worried about. You know what I mean? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is kind of an issue that that the uh, the modern like American orchestra has also dealing with is the orchestra is a four hundred year old model, but they're shrinking every day. They're less funded, less people go, and some people want to stick to the old model. Some people want to try and adapt. And I, um, yeah, it's about what gets people in in the seats. And I mean, for cinephiles like <laughs> yourself and 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 I. 
it doesn't take much to get me in <laughs> to go out uh, to the theater and in the seat. But for a lot of people, it's not the case. If you have a family, if you don't live next to a lot of theaters, that's that has been one of the great things about streaming is that you can have people out in the middle of nowhere get into independent cinema, get into things they would have never have watched or would never have come to their uh, theater before. And what I, 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 w- I would hope that there is because, you know, Netflix has a certain standard. And it's generally like I wouldn't have seen something like Booksmart on Netflix. Like that, they, they wouldn't have come out with an original like that, right? And and when it comes to people living far away, finding things that are accessible on Netflix or your phone or your iPad or whatever, the question that follows that naturally is: Is theatrical release still important? Is it still important to be putting movies in theaters, or should we just be dumping them onto the internet on streaming services and people can decide for themselves what they what they want to do? What What do you think? Um, you know, I, I think I think the theatrical release is absolutely still important. We maybe don't need as many theaters as we have. That that may be how that kind of uh, that tree is pruned. If we had less or fewer theaters, then you know there'd be more to people go to. It's it's a tough thing, especially since they're all like mega screen cineplexes. You know, there's very few of like the historical Texas theater that we like to to go to. Um, I, I definitely love seeing things in theaters. And what's interesting is that a lot of times comedy is what gets takes the biggest hit because people say, "Well, I don't need to see that in a theater. I'll just watch that at home. There's no reason to see the spectacle." And and I and I profoundly disagree because it's it's completely different to see a film in in the theater, even if it's a funny one. And for me, you know, it it it's so different seeing a comedy where other people are laughing because. Yeah. Uh, what what was it? It's like when we saw The Shining, like people were laughing at things that I had never even thought were funny. But yeah, yes. it's it's kind of comical in that sense. And when, you know, when someone chuckles, that's nothing. But when a hundred people, hundred and fifty people chuckle, you know, that, now we we have laughs. So it's I, I think it's very different and very important. Um, but it's going to be tough as people just don't want to get up and leave. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's challenging from the creative side, of course, because just like I said at the open here, you have to make something that's compelling enough to get somebody to get up off their chair and want to go pay money and sit and watch it. What frustrates me are directors like, and I'm going to single one out of this article, and I know I shouldn't, but Paul Feig, who directed Bridesmaids and Ghostbusters uh, 2016, the reboot, he said, uh, in Lawrence of Arabia, there's this one shot where Lawrence of Arabia is coming over the sand dune. It's shot in this huge cinescope, 40-inch whatever and he's just a dot on this monster screen that you're watching it. He's like, that's so iconic. But nowadays, if you're making a movie and you want to do that, you have to stop and think to yourself, well, people are going to be seeing this on their phone. So I can't do this shot because people are going to see seeing it from too far away. And that frustrates me because what that means is from the creative perspective, you're handicapping yourself. And that doesn't work for me. I think if anything is going to keep people going to the movies and keep movies coming out in theaters, it's got to be directors who are willing to take a risk and say, no, this is my standard. And that's in here. Somebody said, if you want to see the new Tarantino flick, you don't get to watch that on your phone. You have to go see it. You have to create that demand. You have to get people to keep wanting to see these things. And I think that's important. Yeah, that definitely is... uh when I think of a director thinking about, oh, how someone's going to see this on their phone, yeah, that makes me hurt a little bit because, again, the big spectacle is that's how we get those iconic shots. If you're worried about the the five by seven screen, you're going to think small, I think. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know. You know, another question this asks is, is uh, will st- streaming era force us to rethink things like the Oscars, right? How do you handle award seasons when it comes to streaming? And I... 
I'm still split on this stuff because, man, when I was in film school, like, I saw movies that you would not call a film. Things that, like, like I, I remember once we watched a short film where a director painted on 35 millimeter film and ran it through a projector for four minutes or whatever. And it was, like, flashes of black and white and red and stuff. And he was like, that's my film. What do you think? And people, like, this is not just, like, a student film. Like, somebody did that way back in the day. And, like, it's still heralded as, like, inventive film. That's considered a movie. So, like, wh- who are we to say what's a movie and what isn't a movie? And I guess that's up for the Academy to decide, but I don't know. I guess I'm split on the whole thing. Wh- what do you think? I th- I think that things like the Oscars and award shows in general might start to just have a lot less importance. Um, I, I mean, I think they already do. Less people are, fewer people are watching the Oscars every year. Um, and if you don't know, every single award show is just a money grab. It's just, it's a business opportunity for everyone involved. And, you know, they, they try to make it about the, the awards. So they want people to fight over this, this film or that film or that, that song or that, that album get winning best album of the year, whatever. That's all secondary to people making money. Uh, so I think what a lot of this means is that those, again, old models are dying out and award shows, I think, are, are part of that. I think we'll always have the Oscars, but they may have less cultural impact than uh, they used to have. Yeah. So when it comes to uh, kids, young adults caring about the movies... Where do we land on this? Because uh, Kumal Nanjani, who, who's a comedian, like I said, uh, he made a great point. He said, you know, when I was a kid, I watched things like Indiana Jones and I watched Ghostbusters. Those made me part of who I am. Now, he's an actor, so it's easy to say, well, of course they did. You're an actor now. But, like, kids watching YouTube isn't the same way, right? Maybe kids watching Netflix isn't the same way either. Any hot takes on this? Um, it, it's it's a different world. And, you know, I have friends who are teachers and they say, oh, their kids, they don't watch movies and they also don't even watch TV. They said, oh, they just watch YouTube all day. They'll... Uh, they'll watch shows there or they'll watch a web series or they'll watch uh, their favorite uh, YouTube star or their favorite channel. And you know, it's, it's different. That's, it's a different medium. Those are five to 10 minute videos, 20 minute videos maybe uh, is the long one. So it's, it's completely different. And so, yes, you might have to start making films that kind of cater to that. One of the quotes um, in the article in the New York times article is that, you know, maybe we need to figure out how to make, seven minute, you know, a film in seven minute chunks or 15 minute chunks to do a, you know, 20 chapter feature because that's, that's di- different and you're going to have to adapt or you're not going to be there. Now, one more thing that's mentioned here, the question is posed, can greater opportunities for women and people of color save an industry in turmoil? I'm, I like this question because on its face, it doesn't seem like the answer is Yes. But Franklin Leonard here is very quick to point out, uh, if you're not moving, making movies like Crazy Rich Asians and Black Panther and Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman in 2019, you're in trouble. People like those movies. Those movies objectively do well. And people talk about them and they get social media play. They're a big deal. What do you think about this? Um, yeah, I, I'm reminded of Coco, which was turned out to be the, the best-selling film in um, in Mexico. And, and it is a great film in, in general. And yeah, it, it shows diversity help works at the box office because you get all your mainstream audiences. And then you also get the minority audiences that are a lot of times feel left out of, of their films. And, and we see that even reflected in our show when we do, uh, like when we reviewed Booksmart, we had way more uh, female listeners than, than we did when we don't have a female led led film. So diversity matters and it matters to the bottom line. It's not just about equality and representation it will help it will help 
finances. Uh, Octavia Spencer um, has a great quote in here where she said, 10 years ago, she wasn't getting anything. Now she's, the phone's ringing off the hook um, for her to be in films that she would have never been in. And it's, it's because people want more representation and representation is good financially. Hmm. I agree. And like, ultimately the reason I say it doesn't seem like on its face, it would is because usually when an industry is quote in turmoil, you want to go back to what works, right? Roll back a second and say, hold on, let's go back to the big action blockbusters and superhero films. And a lot of ways are similar to Western films, right? When the hero rolls into town and defeats the villain and then vanishes into the, into the horizon. Um, but ultimately, yeah, you have to look at movies like Black Panther and Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman, which are all superhero films, to understand that diversity seems to work, right? It seems to resonate with audiences because it's different and it's new. And if there's anything that movies need nowadays, I think it's things that are different and new. So, yeah, that's our conversation about the movies, I guess. Any other thoughts, Andy? Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I think adaptation is key is seeing what uh, the industry is doing, what's working, what technology brings. Like we don't even know we, uh, you know, VR might ha- begin to play a big part in this um, a- as that technology develops and other technologies we haven't even thought of yet that might develop. Uh, so y- you never know, but I think you have to be open to new models, new, new things and adapt. Yeah, I agree. Well, uh, speaking of adapt adaptation, I totally blew that segue. Speaking of adaptation, adapting, <laughs> uh, we should talk about the new adaptation of a 20, uh, 20 something year old slasher film uh, involving a small plastic doll. It's very angry at people. The film is Child's Play. Good night, Andy. Child's Play is about a young boy <laughs> named Andy, a 13-year-old, who lives with his uh, about 30-something-year-old mother, played by Aubrey Plaza. Uh, she is working a dead-end job, and she is, she's single and trying to make things work with her boyfriend, who's kind of a jerk, but, you know, that's the way it is. And she ends up getting her son a refurbished Caslin Buddy doll, right? These dolls that this big smart company called Caslin makes that makes smart devices, kind of like Google or Amazon or Siri. Uh, they make these little dolls called buddy dolls that are about uh, about knee high waist high maybe uh that walk around and talk and have silicon faces and and they're like animatronics right And they help you around your home and they're your buddy and they're there to, to be your friend and unfortunately this refurbished doll they get isn't quite wired the same as all the other buddy dolls and they come to discover that he's just a little different and 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 acts out in some strange and violent ways and that's essentially the, the summary for our new child's play reboot uh andy what did you think of Child's Play? Oh, this movie is absolutely horrific. It is mm. terrible. It is one of the worst films I've ever seen. It is the worst film I've seen this decade. And I didn't. I honestly didn't make it all the way through. I I, I walked out after about an hour because I just I just <laughs> I just couldn't take it anymore. And I've never I've never walked out of a film before in my life. But it was just. I was bored, I was frustrated, I was getting really antsy in my chair, and I just couldn't take it anymore after a while. Yeah, the scariest thing about Child's Play is how god-awful boring it is. This movie is terrible. <laughs> and it it's horrible. Short. It's 90 minutes, and it feels like eternity. Uh, it should be a lesson in how to not pace a film. It is so bad. 
It is so bad. Oh my god! It is probably the worst film I've seen in the last decade as well. I got so bored. I got I I got my phone out about halfway through it. I was the only one in the theater. Nobody else was seeing it with me. Opening weekend, of course. Um, Deadsville. It was so bad. I checked my watch at one point and thought it had stopped because surely, like, more time has passed than I think. I'm like, no, no, it was horrible. And we're gonna talk about why. Child's Play is totally not worth your time. Just gonna spoil that for you. So, Andy. <laughs> Why don't we start this conversation? Oh gosh. Um, well, let's start with the the premise. So the now we'll we'll say this is a very successful series. It's made you know well over two hundred million dollars. Seven films. There's going to be a TV show next uh, next year. Um, it has a, a fan base and um, and it's like sixty percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So this isn't like uh, even though I think it's what we're saying it's uh, it's got a following. Um, now the original 1988 film has a, uh, a serial killer getting, doing some voodoo and getting his soul transferred into the doll. Right. He gets struck by lightning while he's bleeding out in a buddy doll factory and right. uh, somehow gets zapped into the doll. That's the whole gag. Yeah. So th- this does, this does away with all that. And it has like some disgruntled Vietnamese programmer, uh, you know, mess with the, the programming chip and make the doll violent, basically. Um, yeah, there's, which is which as a programmer is really problematic on a number of levels. But go ahead. Well, one, he's a he's a sweatshop factory worker, and two, yeah, he goes into to to program this doll to be evil, and like it just it shows him flying through computer settings as he's like frantically doing it, making sure his boss isn't watching him. And there's like there's a screen that just stra- says up stra- straight up says violence setting, and it turns it from <laughs> off to on. Like this thing already has a violence setting. And all of them are turned off by default, but this one guy knows what he's doing, knows how to program it to be violent by just switching on the violence. Like, what? Like This, it, this it is like 1980s whole, logic. Yes, it poses a whole range of questions. And it's at this point that I thought maybe this movie is trying to be like schlock, right? Maybe it's trying to have like goofy 80s comedy horror, but like it doesn't hit the mark ever in the whole movie. It's never funny and it's never scary. It, so it just is completely tone deaf somehow. Like, I thought it would be, like, a good, scary reboot. I was expecting, like, the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot that everybody forgot about because that was terrible, too. But, like, no. <laughs> this, this, I, think it, I think it's trying to be funny, and it just completely misses the mark. It's not even worth a laugh. Yeah, every this movie is terrible on every front. Like, it is written poorly. Characters are terrible. Actors are terrible, except for Brian Tyree Henry. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> true. He's the only guy the sets are terrible. The setting is terrible. It it all looks fake. I mean, it, it's hard to even know where to start. But uh, you know, there's a, but the thing is that frustrates me is that there's a lot, lot of potential here. You could have done this thing about AI or about technology, and uh, you know, you could have had like some real real world elements and maybe made some social commentary. But it it, it throws all that out the window and expects us to believe that children in 2019 want to play with dolls. Right, a doll that, one, is is super creepy in silicon. Well, it's trying to be creepy. It just comes off as, like, goofy. It's not even It's not even scary. But is, is, is wearing overalls and a striped sweater. It's 2019. I'm like, nobody wears overalls. No, why, why would anybody... <laughs> like, if you were going to have, like, an android kind of thing, robot, that's, like, walking and talking in 2019, that thing would look like one of those Japanese... Nissan robots or something or look like a Tesla it'd be all sleek and like chrome or white or something like it doesn't make sense or it would be like an an evil tablet 
you know, yeah, or an right. evil app. Yes. <laughs> like it, it would, would be, be yeah. Like that's all all that's all that people play on are are like on with technology, which is fine. It's not a that's not a, a hit against that, but it's just kids playing with life like like a thirteen year old playing with a lifelike doll in this day and age is just like no. Right, and that's part of the turn in this film because Buddy is refurbished. Yeah, and he quickly identifies himself as Chucky. Let's be clear. He is his name Chucky in this, but I'm just gonna call him Buddy because it's you know, why not? Because the Buddy doll uh is is refurbished at the beginning of the film, usually about the first half of it, it can't really connect with any apps or any other devices because it's kind of broken. But then later in the film, when it's pretty evil it gains the ability to control like the the in-home thermometer system the ac and the lights and so it's like flickering lights and it's like it's not scary because it's just a robot like i'm not afraid of my amazon alexa like i have one i probably should be but like it's not gonna hop up and kill me and i'm certainly not gonna i'm not gonna buy anything that has the ability to walk around my apartment and pick up a knife like it doesn't make any sense it's not scary. Like, it's just kind of dumb. Like, and it doesn't, it just doesn't land anywhere. Like nobody is scared of this thing. Yeah. Going the AI route risks it being essentially like Terminator or iRobot or AI. Both better films. Uh, yeah. You know, so and you, you got to do something more if you're going to go down that, that road and it just right. doesn't. I've, I've heard it said that one of the worst things about this film is that it's a child's play reboot because if it was its own thing and they didn't use Chucky they kind of did their own thing like maybe it would do better it wouldn't it would be a red box feature the only reason this is in theaters is because it's a child play, child's play film it's a horrible movie but like part of what made the original so interesting was this this magic thing right like this serial killer in the body the voodoo, of the doll yeah. right and at the beginning of the movie throughout the original child's play from 88 the doll just kind of does some weird things at first and we the audience don't know how how it's wired up exactly to be evil. And then you find out at the end when it grabs the mom's hair and starts calling her horrible things and trying to stab her that, oh, okay, just the entire being of that dude seemed to have gotten sucked into this doll. That's the deal. Like, and he was learning how to, how to operate and work himself and now here he is super evil and pissed that he's a doll. This from the very beginning is like, oh no, it's just a robot. It's just a series of ones and zeros set to murder mode. That's yeah. what's scary. Like, it's just... There's no character. Chucky is no longer a character. He's just a robot. So, like, yeah, it's it's like iRobot or Terminator, except more boring. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing is, by the way, a, a cat gets choked at the beginning of this by Chucky. That really bothered me. I didn't like that that was in there. Yeah, let's talk about that. So, uh, there, there are two, I feel, relatively well done factors in this film but that doesn't mean they're good they're just things that were done better than other things they really you know the cream rises to the top as they say the first starts with the the choking cat uh so the gore in this movie is insanely over the top it is all practical effects <laughs> yeah almost all and you're talking like saw film practical effects like horrible stuff you would not want to watch disgusting like I, like i said i was the only one in my theater towards the end of the movie one of the last kills i was literally laughing out loud this is one of the few times i laughed in this film at how over the top it is it's obscene i wanted to leave like it's so uncomfortable and cringy and horrible for no reason and 90% of this film seems like it's aimed towards kids because kids are the only thing that would be scared by a Chucky doll. But the kills in this movie are like hard R, man. They're, they're really something else and they're not even that good for what they are. So the gore in this movie, if you're into practical 80s gore, pretty good, but few and far between. You, you get like maybe a minute of yeah, screen time total. It, it takes like an hour before the first murder happens. 
And I'm yeah. like, I thought, which brings me to another problem. I, I think a lot, the, a lot of the reason these horror reboots do not work is because they're a product of their time and they're, they're product largely of the, the slasher genre, which I believe is kind of dead. Mostly because of technology. Like, we're, we're not scared of, of someone coming through the wo- woods because, like, oh, let me call my phone. Right. Or, like... Slasher movies have had to explain for decades now why somebody couldn't just get out their phone and call for help. Like, it's been a problem. So, a movie like this, where they're trying to embrace the smartness of things, like, it really falls falls flat. And while I'm thinking about it, before we get back into it, the other thing that's relatively redeeming about this film, the soundtrack is actually really cool. Which sounds lame, but hear me out. The soundtrack's made by a guy named Bear McCreary, who's done a handful of films recently. He did Godzilla, King of the Monsters. This is the one I can think of the most recently. And he did the entire soundtrack for the Child's Play reboot with children's toys. So a lot of, like, Hasbro xylophones and, and harmonicas and kazoos. Yeah, a little a toy pianos, a little plinky-plunky kind of high-pitched sounds. So that's kind of cool. Like, for what it's worth, it's a creative soundtrack. Mark Hamill, who does the voice of the doll, offers some VO in that, some vocals, and... It's not bad. It's on Spotify and it's free. That's where I would encourage you to check that out. Do not you do not need to go see the film to experience the Child's Play soundtrack. You can just get on there and click around a couple tracks. Like kind of neat. I, I that and the practical gore were the only two things in this movie that I thought were even remotely interesting. The doll design is terrible. Like I said, it's not it's not scary. It, it doesn't even get that uncanny valley thing. Uh, the eyes in the doll are CGI. The rest of it is animatronic. I think the arms are CGI. So. It never really looks good. It just looks clumsy throughout the whole thing, and the eyes look super fake. So that's not realistic. Like, I don't know. Any, any, anything on that? Any, any feedback? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't tell. I just assumed the entire face was CGI because it just right. looks so bad. Um, yeah, and I, f- it, they should have either gone a hundred percent puppet or just gotten a child to play it to play it you know that would to me that would have actually been scarier because that would have been the the ai route which is um you know get a real human and then just do some robot cgi or something um and and looking at the set like they clearly didn't have the budget for this like you said earlier like the apartment set where most of this film takes place looks so fake like it's so clearly a studio I, well, apartments all, don't actually look like that yeah and all of it just looks so terrible it's like they're in this horrific apartment in a horrific part of town across from this shady like gas station where it looks like people get murdered every other <laughs> weekend i mean it's just all of it just looks so bad like there's no real it doesn't feel like a real setting um uh, aubrey plaza is terrible and and i feel bad because i feel like she's just as extensions of her character from uh parks and rec April Ludgate. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, the the Chucky animatronic is the second most wooden performance in this film next to Aubrey <laughs> Plaza, who I, I, I promise, man, I, I will eat my words I'll if she plastic. does not get a Razzie nomination for this film. I promise she's getting one. It's so bad. Like, she'll be on there, lead actress, child's play, some kind of goofy gag. She probably knows it. I don't get it. I don't get why she even signed up to do this movie. Like you said, maybe her, uh, maybe her bench isn't all that deep. Maybe it's uh, April Ludgate's her character. I don't know. Yeah, and then... There's also uh, this really bothered me about you know the first kind of major kill that we see an hour into the film. Everything about this thing is unbelievably illogical. There's a guy on a ladder taking down Christmas lights in the summer. Summer, but it's like it's the summer, July. Yeah, it's July. He's taking down his lights at like midnight, 
at this really tall shower and there 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 happens to be like a pumpkin patch in his backyard watermelon patch yeah watermelon patch which is just conveniently there so he can get run over by a tilling well, machine like he's he's in the front yard so he has a watermelon machine watermelon patch in his front yard in a suburb uh, that's just yeah he, I, he's taking down christmas lights at night in july while they're lit up like it's just plot <laughs> conveniences like it's not it's not funny it doesn't I don't, I don't know. Like, it's it's not clever. It's not witty. It's just dull and boring. How does this movie feel so long? Do we figure that out? Because honestly, I, I said it at the top, but this movie is is almost a study in how not to pace a film. The editing is so poor, and it takes forever for things to happen. I don't get... I've never felt a 90-minute yeah, movie I, feel this long. Well, it's because it's there's, there's no development of, of characters, no development of, of plot. You know, they just... They want Chucky to be evil and kill stuff, um, and so they just kind of set up those pieces, but they don't know how to connect them. They don't know how to take our characters from A to B. They're all very stock. Uh, I, do, I do think the uh, the kid who plays Andy, uh, who's Gabriel Bateman, uh, I did think he was he was good as a kid. Stuff, I agree. Yeah, as a, as a child actor, but everyone else is just like wooden as can be. Yeah, there's this clumsy, like, Stranger Things subplot with a few of the kids running around trying to deal with, uh, you know, the doll. And at the same time, there's this detective played by Brian Tyree Henry, who's really funny, uh, who is hot on their trail. And he's almost, like, out of the first Saw film, like, with the te- where the detectives in Saw are, like, trying to keep up with Jigsaw. And they're like, man, what's what's happening with these grisly murders? Like, that's him in this movie. That's his character. He's just trying to keep up with, like, the stuff that's happening. And the kids are kind of dancing around I, I don't know it's like i said it's just plot conveniences just to get to the murder at the end which isn't even that satisfying when you get there so yeah it's it's really something else any, any other thoughts for recommendations andy uh no i'm ready to go andy would you recommend child's play <laughs> absolutely not yeah oh my gosh this is the worst movie i've ever seen in a the theater i think i yeah. walked out after about an hour um the trailers i saw before this movie were scarier so this movie is not funny it tries to be a dark comedy. It's not. It tr- it tries to be scary. It's not. It is gory, but it's so boring. You you like even as a slasher film, no one gets killed for the first hour. So you're sitting around waiting for this payoff. It just takes forever. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I walked out, and I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. And I know Mark ha- Hamill did the voice as Chucky. I c- I like I can't really judge the performance. I guess since I didn't see it out, but like it, it was irrelevant. Like it could have been anyone. Yeah, he's not doing, like, Joker from Batman. Um, he's doing it a little bit more childish, but, like, yeah, it could have been anybody. It really could have been. Like, it probably paid him too much to this movie, um, so I don't know. I- I'm in the same boat. I would not recommend this uh, to anybody. If you are a horror fan, skip it. If you are a... <laughs> I-, I like getting together with my friends at, at Halloween and watching goof- goofy horror movies skip it if it's on amc in a year because it will be because nobody will watch this movie skip it like don't there is no reason to watch this abandon all hope ye who enter here it is not funny it is not interesting it is not sharp it is not it's not witty it's it's not it's not even it's not camp it's it's not scare it's nothing it is it is it is a, a, a nothing and and it's such a bummer because i i really i mean i really did think it might be more and like no Nope, it's just terrible. Don't waste your time. The TV show is going to be stupid. Child's Play is dead. Long live Child's Play. So, <laughs> uh, with that being said, uh, we should wrap up the show. We are taking this next week 
off to get ready for a July 4th show because I'm going to be honest, July 4th, a lot of good stuff coming out. Spider-Man Homecoming and uh, Midsummer. Midsummer is coming out. We're going to go see both of those somehow across the weekend. I think we're both going to be out of town, so I don't know how we're going to work that out, but we'll make it happen. So we're going to take this next week off, just kind of steal ourselves for that. So no show next week, but we'll be around afterwards if you want to weigh in on this child's play thing and somehow convince us that maybe it's not as bad as we think it is, I would love to hear that conversation. Not to prove you wrong, but to try to shed a little light on why I thought this movie was so bad. Because I, I, it's it's stunningly bad. Hit us up at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're around. So tell us what's going on. And let us know what you think of Toy Story as well. Let us know what you think about the future of the movies. If you got any hot takes on Spirited Away beating out Toy Story, I'd love to hear that as well. Because I love that movie. And I like hearing about it uh like i said next week we're off i did say that uh next week after spider-man homecoming and midsummer so keep an eye out for those and if you want us to keep up with the show just subscribe it's the easiest thing you just hit that subscribe <laughs> button and we'll be on your phone uh not next week but the week after we got plenty of episodes to go back and listen to leave us a rating and review if you can swing it and thanks as always for listening from all of us at off script the home of bold cinema i'm zach lewis and i'm dr draper thanks for listening